And now let's just pause once more and ask the Lord to bless this time of study. Father, you said that you would never leave us or forsake us, that you'd be with us to the end of the age. You told us that you who began a good work in us, that you'll be faithful to complete it and finish it until the end. And so tonight, Lord, as we look at this passage of Joshua, we pray that we might join our hearts to your purpose in shaping and making us into what you want us to be. We ask that you would give us clarity of thought, that you'd give us personal application, and that you'd give us understanding of this text as it relates to our path in our lives. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon each one of us as we study these scriptures tonight, that we might hear what your Spirit would say to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. So Joshua chapter 23. We've all heard the phrase that hindsight is 2020. And usually when that phrase is used, it happens after the fact of a circumstance or a situation or an episode or a season of our lives where we can see clearly the mistakes that we made and the choices that were made or in how we would do things differently or what was good and what was bad. And because we've lived through those experiences, we can look back on it and with perfect clarity, we can say hindsight is 2020. It was S.J. Watson who said it like this. He said, it's so difficult, isn't it, to see what's going on when you're right in the middle of something. It's usually only in hindsight that we can see things for what they are. And too often, isn't it true that it isn't until after something is all over that we look back on it and then gain insight and wisdom and extract lessons and, you know, what not from the things that we've gone through. And, and we've all felt that feeling of after-the-fact clarity that we wish we had had going into situations. As we come to Joshua chapter three, 23 tonight, we come to the end of Joshua's life. And really, we're coming near to the end of the book of Joshua. And what these chapters give to us is the final words of Joshua to the leaders and also to the nation as he stands on the outer ends of his life looking back and then speaks to them about where they're headed going forward. There's something about a person's last words, especially a person of faith or a person who's walked with God for their entire life. As they stand and, and, and look at the broad spectrum of all of their experiences and all that God has done and how he's led them, there's a certain clarity that comes from the hindsight of looking back on everything. But when someone like that speaks, it gives insight to those who are right in the middle of life or in the middle of the fray, so to speak, in everything else. And so these words carry great weight as we consider this man and who he is and what he's done and now what he has to say to them. The life of Joshua can really be summed up into three words. Those words are courageous, victorious, and successful. And the reason why I like that so much is because those three words can be universally applied. Meaning that no matter who you are, what age you are, where you live, what you do, or any other factor that might be attached to who you are, if you are courageous, victorious, and successful, you win. And so these words, if they're a part of who we are, they describe a successful, courageous, and victorious life. And I think that's something that we all want. And so as Joshua begins to say these things, he gathers the people together, and he's going to give to them the keys to his success the secrets to how it was that he lived such a prosperous and fruitful life. And essentially what he's going to say to us is that if you do these things, no matter where you are, what generation you're a part of, then you're going to win. You cannot 
fail. And so he gives to them a three-point sermon in chapter 23 that give to us instructions and insight into how to be courageous, victorious, and successful. The first point, it comes in the first five verses, and here's his point as we, before we even read it, is this, is that the work of God has begun in your life, but there's still work to do. Let's look at the text here, chapter 23, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua was old and advanced in age. About 18 years has passed between the end of chapter 22 and the beginning of chapter 23. It says it came to pass a long time after. And Joshua is nearing the end of his course. He's experienced 18 years of somewhat of a rest in his retirement, if you would, so to speak. And it says there in verse 2 that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and said to them, I am old and advanced in age. That's a great sermon introduction. I'm going to do that sometime. I'm just going to say amen. I am old and advanced in age. In fact, I'm looking forward to the day when I can just say, I am old and advanced in age. But he says, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. In these verses, Joshua summarizes for the children of Israel what God has done among them under his leadership while he has been their leader. Under his leadership, the people had gone from nomads to pioneers, from those that wandered in the wilderness to those that had a homeland and were planted, rooted, and fruitful. They had seen the backs of those city nations of the Canaanites broken and their land divided to the children of Israel. And in that, the foundation for their future had been laid. But the work wasn't finished. Joshua had begun. They were rooted. They were set. They were seated. But there was still more work to do. When God told the children of Israel that he was going to give them that land, back in the book of Exodus, chapter 23, the Lord spoke to them through Moses, and he said to them in in Exodus 23, verse 29, he said, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. He said to them that it wouldn't be something that happens just all at once. It wouldn't just be one great battle and all of the Canaanites would be expelled and the children of Israel would live happily ever after. But God said, as the population increases and as your foothold in the land increases, you're to continue to drive out the inhabitants of the land generation by generation. In another place, Moses said that the reason for that is that the Lord might teach you to fight and that he might try you and test you to see if you'll walk in his ways. And so it wasn't something that would be done in a day or in a year or even in the seven years of their conquest. It was something that was to be ongoing and continual. And the warning that Joshua is giving them attached to this reminder of what's been done is a warning against complacency. That you don't put it on autopilot. That you don't just coast and say, well, we've taken the land, we've ascribed borders to ourselves, and so that's enough. There's no need for us to fight any longer or drive out any more of their wicked schemes or wicked ways, but we can just live like we are and everything will be okay. And Joshua is saying, that's not the attitude that you're to have. God has begun a work and you're in the land, but you're to continue. He will continue to drive out these nations from before you. 
This exhortation that Joshua gives to them applies just as much to the church and to the individual Christian today as it did to the nation when Joshua spoke it back then. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church and to us, and he said that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you've given your life to the Lord, then he has saved you. He's put his Holy Spirit inside of you, and he's written your name in the Lamb's book of life, and you're destined to end up in heaven. But while you're still here on earth, there's a work that's going on inside your life. God is continuing to root out the old ways of the self-life and to replace it with the new nature of Jesus Christ that's worked in by the power of His Spirit in our lives. And that is a lifelong work. It goes from the moment that you're saved until the moment that you die, when at that point you're perfected and finished in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. But as long as you're here on earth, Christian, there are enemies in your life, there are battles that you're to fight, and there are things that you're to drive out so that you can continually grow. And that's the exhortation. That's what Joshua is getting at and what the Spirit of God would say to you and I tonight. Is that if you want to be successful, courageous, victorious, then it means that you must continue to grow. There's no such thing as autopilot in the Christian life. There's no such thing as just coasting for a while or saying, I've come this far in the Lord, I've gotten my roots this deep, I know this much, and so it's no longer necessary for me to press in, to fight on, and to go further and deeper in my relationship with the Lord. Not so. Because the minute you begin to die, uh, you know, not grow as a Christian, you begin to die as a Christian. If you're not growing as a Christian, then you are shrinking, and you can be sure of that. We are called to grow until we die. There is no time of coasting. If there was any saint or Christian ever that could have said, you know what, I've come far enough, it would be the Apostle Paul. I don't think there's been anyone that has lived since the Apostle Paul that has grown as much and gone as far as Paul. He had the right, if he wanted to say, I can coast for a while, I don't need to grow. But that wasn't his attitude. And that's why Paul was who Paul was. He said it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through uh, 15 there. He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. That means attained, made it, finished. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God has an upward call for each one of our lives. And in order for us to attain that upward call, it means that we must continually grow, that we can never say, I'm done. Sometimes I see young Christians that really get it. They catch on fire for the Lord from the moment that they're saved. They get into the Word of God and they can't get enough of it. Their Bible, their first Bible, gets all ripped up with notes and hash marks and you know, post-its and flyers and church bulletins. And, and, and you just see their life. You see Jesus in their face. They're bearing fruit and leading others to salvation and they're involved. And, and you look at them and you say, man, that one is just growing. Why can't the whole church be like that? And that's a good thing when you see that happen. But there's a danger that comes along with that. Because sometimes after a season of watching somebody grow that way, you begin to see them cool a little bit and then they disappear. And you say, what happened to them? And here's what happened to them. Is that they were growing so fast... And the word that they heard from everyone around them is, you're growing so fast, you're doing so well, that they get to a point where they say, you know what? I'm just going to coast for a little while. I'm way ahead of the game. I know way more scripture than I probably should know by this amount of time that I've been walking with Jesus. I'm doing more than most Christians do that have been saved for 20 years. So I can just cool off a little bit here and I don't need to press so hard towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, it doesn't take long when a person takes that position for the ground to catch up with their progress 
And they quickly become smaller than they should be for the amount of time that they've been in the faith. I remember in my own experience, a a moment I had where my ministry schedule was extremely busy. I was working full time and I had a family and, you know, from every angle, my cup was full. My plate was bulging with responsibility and I was growing weary. And I remember at one point, I just wanted to throw in the towel concerning the things of God, because that was the thing that was the least pressing in my schedule. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to not do this anymore. And I remember walking, I remember right where I was, I was walking up the center aisle before a church service in my church looking for a seat. And the Lord whispered, the Spirit of God spoke to my heart, and he just very gently, very graciously said to me, do you want to stop here? He didn't say it condemningly. He didn't say it as if to say, what are you, some kind of a wimp, you know, or any. He he just said, do you want to stop here? And and I could almost sense the smile in his face and and, and the sense of his delight. And, and, And I sighed and my shoulders sank down and I verbally responded to that. And I said, no, Lord, I don't want to stop. And, and it was amazing, you know, what happened in my heart, just the, you know, the, the, the expression of faith and what that did. It made me realize, hey, he's in control. That, yeah, maybe it's, it's there, there's, you know, some stretching, there's some growing, there's some difficulty, but it's worth it because of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I count not myself to have attained, but this one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind, I press towards the mark for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the exhortation that Joshua is giving to the people and that we have for us tonight. Grow. Are you growing? You say, well, how do you grow? I'm glad you asked because the answer is in verse 6. How do we grow? How do we ensure that we're continually growing in our faith? Joshua says next in verse 6. He says, therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. If you want to continually grow as a Christian, it cannot and will not come unless you continually immerse yourself and continue in the word of God. That you continually put the word of God into your heart, into your mind, and into your soul. Notice the words that Joshua uses in that verse to describe the Christian's relationship to the scriptures. He says, first of all, be very courageous. Now, that's not typically a word that we associate with a devotional life or with Bible reading or with putting the word into us. But he says, make sure you're courageous to do and to keep all that is written. What does that mean? Why is that there? The word courageous in the Hebrew, the definition, it means to be strong to be firm, and to be resolute. That you're to guard that part of your Christian discipline, that part of your life, that section of your day, that you're to guard it with resolution. That nothing's to get in between you and your continued immersion in the scriptures. He says, after that, be courageous to keep it. The word keep means to guard, to protect, and to hedge about. And here's the idea is that there's nothing that's to get in between you and the place that the Word of God is to have within your life. There's to be a strong hedge about you that you would would not give that up and that you don't give up that practice or that discipline. Then he says, and to do it. The word do means do. It isn't enough just to know the Word. It isn't enough just to read the Word or hear the word taught, or hear the word spoken, or even to memorize it. All of those things are good. But the reason why you do those things is so that you can put it into practice in your life and see it lived out and see its benefits lived out on your behalf. And so he says, make sure that you keep it, but that you also do it. And then he adds this, and he says, do not turn to the right hand or to the left. This is a phrase that we see come up over and over again in exhortations like this throughout the Bible. That when it comes to our belief and our walk, we're not to turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, we use those terms in a very political way, and I believe that the Bible uses those words almost in the same way. When we talk about someone who leans to the right or is right-handed, we speak of them as being very conservative, 
When we talk of someone going to the left, we speak of them as being very liberal. We understand that in politics, but what does it mean in Scripture? What does it mean to turn to the right hand? Well, to be right-handed in the Scripture is to be so conservative in your beliefs that you actually concentrate the meaning of things to mean more than what they actually say. It speaks of adding to the Word of God. You add to the Word of God, you're concentrating it. To turn to the left would be to water it down or to dilute it. That is, to take things away from it. Those are the two greatest temptations that a Christian faces as it relates to our belief and our practice. The one temptation is to saturate it. That's what Eve did in the garden when Satan came to her and said, Hath God said, You shall not eat from every tree of the garden? And she contested and said, No, God didn't say that. He said that we're not to eat from the tree of life, nor are we to touch it, lest we should die. Wait, God didn't say you're not to touch it. But Satan had accomplished his objective because what he discovered is that she didn't know the scripture. She didn't know the will of God for her life. She was going beyond it. It was the same indictment that Jesus gave to the Pharisees. They were constantly adding to the word of God, making it say more than it actually said. Defining the Sabbath or the laws of God in a way that goes beyond what God intended them to mean. And Jesus said, you do err because you know not the scriptures or the power of God. The other temptation is to lean left and to water the word down. To take and choose what we like, but to ignore the other parts that we don't. To take tough passages that fly in the face of political correctness and to make them mean something else or to ignore them altogether because it's just easier to do that. And you're not to do that. That if you want to be successful, victorious, if you want to lead a life that doesn't lose, the way to do it is to walk in the word, to keep it and to do it. Don't turn to the right hand or to the left, but stay in it and stay on the path that God has laid out for his people. And here's what's going to happen is that you're going to grow. You cannot continue in the word of God and not grow. You will grow if you keep and do the word. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, he said, continue in my word. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. What he's saying there is that the word itself, the truth itself is going to do a work in your life to make you free to make you grow, to make you more like him and more what God designed you to be. So you want to win? Joshua's saying at the end of his life, looking back, you want to be victorious and successful? Stay in the word and you're going to continue to grow. And you'll see as God has done in my life, so also you'll see it done in your life. There's only a very few species of living things on planet earth that grow until they die. And Christians are one of them. So don't stop growing. Because we have the potential to grow. The second point of Joshua that we pick up with in verse 7 here here as we go on is the importance of separation. That it's important for the people of God to stay separated. Notice what he says here. He says, Unless you go among these nations, these who remain among you, You shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them. But you shall hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them, and go into them and they to you, then know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. The people of God were not to integrate with the heathen Canaanites that dwelt within 
the land. They were to remain separated from them because it was impossible for them to integrate and not be corrupted by their ways and the things that they did. Joshua really describes a progression of how that corruption would take place as he goes through these couple of verses. He he implies that it will begin with an infatuation, a desire to become familiar with their gods, to just ask them, how do you worship? What does it mean, this statue or this image or this temple or this method? Why do you do it that way? And what's the benefit of doing it? That that's how it would start, that they would mention the name of those gods, become familiar with their ways. But that if they did that, they would subtly but certainly be drawn away from the true and the living God. That if they began to inquire, it would turn into a curiosity. And little by little, there would be a splintering, a separating between them and their God, the one that they were to worship and serve. And then after that, they would begin to forget what God had done for them. It's what Joshua reminds them of in verse 9, how no one had been able to stand before them. But then after that, after they forgot what God had done for them, then they would begin to lose spiritual power. They had been so strong that one of them would chase a thousand. But it wouldn't happen that way any longer. They'd begin to lose that and that ultimately they would become enslaved by the vices that destroyed their enemies. That's what he describes there at the end of the section, that there'll be thorns and scourges and and a problem and bitterness for you until you perish from off the land. Essentially, what he says to them is that your interest in what they do will lead to indulgence. You'll begin to do it yourself. And that indulgence will end with enslavement that you'll be tied to those gods and they'll become scourges to you and you'll ultimately lose the blessing and the power of God within your life. The application of this and why this truth is timeless and is real for us today as it was for them is that we as Christians are to remain separated from this world's system. It's a clear call in the scripture that we are not to be integrated with the world and with the ways of the world. It's not only something that the Bible says, but it's absolutely essential to our survival and our longevity if we desire to lead fruitful and growing lives. We've got to be separated from the world. But you ask, well, what exactly does that mean? Because that's honestly always been one of the skeevish aspects of the Christian faith to me. It sounds almost cultish. Are we supposed to be monastic, go live in a monastery? And, you know, what does it mean that we're to be separated from the world? Is this cult talk? Is this where you tighten the noose on us, Pastor Nick, and, and, and tell us that, that we're to, you know, wear robes or something? What does it mean for the Christian to remain separated? Jesus said it like this in John chapter 17. As he prayed for us just before he went to the cross. The Holy Spirit eavesdropped on Jesus' prayer and recorded it for us here in this chapter. And the whole chapter is red letters. It's Jesus' prayer. And here's what he prayed for you and I in verse 9. He said, I pray for them. That's you and I. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then down in verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And here's the point, according to Jesus, is that we are in the world. And he didn't pray that we would be taken out of the world, literally. But he said, though we are in the world, we are not of the world. We are to be separate. God has declared himself to be the mortal enemy of this world system. In James chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says clearly that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Because God is at odds. He is enemies with the world and with the world system. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, and he tells us clearly. 
He says, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Because if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, there's a stark contrast between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our God. The system of this world and the systems of his kingdom. There's a contrast. And as his people, we are not to be integrated in love with or consumed by, passionate about, the things of this world. We're to be separated unto him and for his purposes and his interests. Now, it doesn't mean to live a monastic lifestyle or to go into a monastery. And here's why. Because the spirit of the world doesn't live in a place, it lives in people. And you can go live in a monastery and separate yourself completely from all society and from all men, but you can still love the world in your heart and be as much a part of the world system in your affections. Or you could work or live in Times Square, the very armpit of Satan's kingdom, and you can be separated from the world. Because the kingdom of God is first in priority in your heart and you have a disdain for the kingdoms of this world and the systems of this world. So it's not a call to live in a monastery or to never talk to someone who's unsaved or be in a place where there's non-Christians. But in our heart, the position of our life is that we are to remain separated from this world. You say, okay, well, how do we do that? How do we, in our heart, in a place where no one can see, and where there's no visible or physical position that separates us, how do we do this? Do we become separated? I'm glad you asked that, because the answer is right here in our text. Look with me again at what he says in verse 11. He says, Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. The key to living a separated life is found in the love of God. The fellowship that we have with God in his love. The key to being separate is not what we're separate from, but it's what we're separated for. If you constantly dwell upon what it is that you're separated from, well, I'm not a part of the world, so I don't do this, and I can't do that, and I don't think this way, and I don't act that way, then you're destined to fail because you're trying to separate yourself from something that you're fleshly nature is attracted to and it's only a matter of time before you slip up and find yourself drawn back to it so separation isn't about what it is that we're separated from it's about what we're separated for and what were we separated for here's what it is is that the full capacity of my soul is consecrated and devoted to be filled with and satisfied by the love of god The human soul was created. Listen to me here. If you've tuned me out, come back in. The human soul was created for one purpose and one purpose only. And that was to experience the love of its creator, the love of God. And the human soul cannot be satisfied until it meets with that purpose. Until it tastes, drinks in, and is saturated with God's love. So the soul is constantly searching until it finds the thing that it was created for. And that's the thing that it was created for. I came upon this in my studies and I'll share it with you. It says some scientists, according to a a story by Harold Bredson, decided to develop a fish that could live outside of water. So selecting some healthy red herring, they bred and crossbred, hormoned and chromosomed until they produced a fish that could exist out of water. But the project director wasn't satisfied. He suspected that though the fish had learned to live on dry land, it still had a secret desire for water. Re-educate it, he said. Change its very desires. So again, they went to work, this time retraining even the strongest reflexes. The result? A fish that would rather die than get wet. Even humidity filled this new fish with dread. The director, proud of his triumph, took the fish on tour. Well, quite accidentally, according to official reports, it happened. The fish fell into a lake. It sank to the bottom, eyes and gills clamped shut, afraid to move lest it become wetter. 
And of course, as it dared not breathe, every instinct said no, yet breathe it must. So the fish drew a tentative gillful. Its eyes bulged. It breathed again and flicked a fin. It breathed the third time and wriggled with delight. Then it darted away. The fish had discovered water. And with that same wonder, men and women, conditioned by a world that rejects God, discover him. For in him we live and move and we have our being. And the human soul has been separated by Satan and by sin from the very source and what it was designed for. We were designed and made to experience the love of God, but we were separated from it. We were chromosomed and hormoned to live and dwell in a different atmosphere, a different environment. Our very desires were to hate the God who made us and to resist him at all costs. But what happens when a human soul comes in contact with the love of God is that it finds the very reason that it was made and it begins to live with delight and drink in the very purpose for its existence. And when a human soul is saturated and filled with the love of God, the things of the world can then be seen and understood for what they are and separation is no longer a can't. It's a I don't want to. Because I have the truth. I have the love of God. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. That means that apart from God, there is no such thing as real love. True love can only come from God because God is love. It does not exist in any other way or from any other source but from Him. It originates in Him and it doesn't exist apart from Him. Now, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says this. It says that we love God because he first loved us. In other words, the command that Joshua is giving the people to love the Lord is not something that they're to conjure up and to produce from within themselves because they're not capable, they cannot. But rather, it's something that must be originated by God and then reciprocated by man once it's experienced in the soul as it comes from God. It originates with God. It's reciprocated from man. And so our loving of God is simply a response to the love that we've received. And we receive God's love by being in fellowship and being in relationship with him. It's there that we find the, the, the fullness of God's love within our lives. F.B. Meyer, that uh, old theologian that's since passed off the scene, said it like this, and I'm just going to quote him because I couldn't say it better myself. He says, It stands therefore to reason that those who would love must converse deeply with God. There must be a steeping of the nature in his fellowship. I love that that language, steeping like a tea bag steeps in a cup of hot water. A steeping of the nature in his fellowship. As the dyer's hand in the deep colors of his craft, or sea flowers in the warm waters of southern climes. As the moon must hold converse with the sun, that she may receive the glory which she shall transmit to our night, so our only hope of giving love is to receive it. We must get if we would give, absorb if we would transmit, obtain if we would scatter. Oh, for a closer walk with God. The only thing that exists in this whole universe that has an unlimited capacity is the human soul. Meaning that the human soul can stretch out larger than anything that's ever put inside of it. It is never full. It is infinite in its ability to absorb the human soul. That's the way God designed it. Now, if that's true, and it is, then that means that that in order for the soul to be satisfied, there must be something that is an infinite source. And that's what we have in our God who is love. He's an infinite source, and he's the only thing that can satisfy a soul that has infinite capacity and here's the truth of it all is that god does not share space with the world if the source of our satisfaction is in the world then we live in a place where we're at odds we're frustrating the desire of god to fill us with his love and so the call the clarion call for the christian 
is that we are to be separate from the world. We are not to love it. We're not to be integrated with his, its ways. What happens when we do? What's the result of someone who is segregated, separated unto the love of God? Let me go on to quote F.B. Meyer. He says this, Love God and courage must possess you. As the timid bird will assail the dreaded depredator of her nest, her maternal love making her oblivious to all considerations of her own safety. Love God, and you will love his book, nor wish to swerve from it. Love God, and you will not seek a love which is inconsistent with your supreme affection. Love God, and you will possess God, and be possessed by God, and things which otherwise had been snares and traps and scourges will become stepping stones to a fuller, richer life. Love God and you will become one with all holy beings in heaven and upon earth and throughout the universe to whom he is the supreme love. The one consideration, therefore, which demands our thought is how to fulfill this command, take heed to love. And thus we find the answer. How is it that we are to find separation from the world? The answer is in the love of God. He loved us and therefore we absorb, receive that love, and we find in that the true source of all of life. Joshua's third point as we conclude our study here, uh, as he talks to them, as he warns them and he says, don't be deceived. Look with me at verse 14. He says, behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts... And in all your souls, that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Therefore, it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. He says to these people in these final words to these leaders he's gathered, he says, I'm about to die. I'm going the way of all the earth. And you have seen throughout my life, through the example that I've set to you, all of the good things that God will do for one whose life is separated, consecrated, and devoted completely to him. But know for certain that if in any way you turn aside, if you excuse yourself from the ways of God in some subtle way and say, hey, I can turn away, I can stop growing, I can integrate and intermingle with worldly things and nothing's going to happen to me. Yeah, it might slow down my growth a little bit, but it will not be a peril to me ultimately. Joshua says, be very careful of saying in your heart, it's not going to happen to me. Because know for sure that you cannot intermingle or compromise and not be affected or burned by it. If everything that we ever did in this life turned out good, that there was no dire consequences to anything that happened, but no matter what decision we made, where we went, what we did, all of it just turned out good in the end. If that was true, there would be no need for the Bible. There would be no need for God. There'd be no need for Jesus. There'd be no need for us to be here sitting, listening to the word of God. But the fact of the matter is this, is that actions carry consequences. And that the decisions that we make and the things that we do and the course that we chart for our lives are going to make a difference in our destiny and our future. And if you in your heart say, I don't have to, or it's not going to happen to me, then you're going to find yourself reaping the consequences of that, and it's not going to be pleasant. And these are the words that Joshua gives to these people at the end of his life as he looks back on all that he's done with the clarity of hindsight he gives to them this instruction. The man Joshua was more than a leader to the nation of Israel. He was a father. And every good father leaves something to their kids. And what Joshua leaves to them in this chapter 
is more priceless than any financial or physical inheritance that he could leave to them otherwise. He gives to them three foolproof, timeless, ageless, unconditional things that if you will take these things and resolutely, courageously apply them to your walk and your behavior, then you will be successful. You cannot fail. You cannot fail if you continue to grow by staying in the word of God, by remaining separated unto God's love and keeping yourself unspotted from the world, and by never compromising because you think it can't happen to you. If you keep those things in your mind, saith the Lord and saith Joshua, then you will do well. Father, we thank you tonight for this word. You tell us that you're committed to give to us and do for us all of those things that are going to bring us to a fruitful place in our existence. Your word says that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him that's called us to glory and virtue. We know, Lord, that your will is good, that your ways are true, that your spirit is strong, and that your love is real. And so tonight, Lord, we make it our prayer that we might hear the words of Joshua and through them, the words of Jesus, and that our lives might be affected. That through the things that we heard tonight, Lord, that there would be a straight path for our feet. That where there's adjustments that need to be made, where there's change that has to take place, where there's repentance maybe, or consecration, Lord, we would ask that you would make those things happen, that we might be separated and completely devoted to do your will. And so, Lord, we just thank you. We know that you're committed to us. Help us to remain committed to you in Jesus' name. Oftentimes, at the end of a service here, you'll hear one of us either say something that calls for the raising of a hand or maybe for you to stand up in your seat or maybe even to come forward to the front of the church. The reason why we do that is not for us. It's not so that we can go in the back and get a high five and say, hey, five hands were raised or two people came forward. The reason why we do that is for you. And here's why. Here's why we do it. Because behind the content of every Bible study, there is intent. That is, that there's a reason that these things are in the Bible, that God has put these things in the Bible, so that we can change. And by raising the hand or standing to the feet or by coming forward, it gives us an opportunity to respond to what God, the Holy Spirit, has spoken to us in the teachings, that those things might move from thoughts and desires to actions and deeds. And that's the reason for that. And so maybe tonight, over the course of this Bible study, you know, the Spirit of God spoke to you in some way. Maybe you have a very dusty Bible. Your devotional life has gone by the wayside. You've stopped putting the Word in. You can remember a time in your life when you couldn't get enough, when you would drink deeply from the, the river of the Word. But lately, or maybe for a long time, the Word of God has become secondary. It's on the shelf, and God spoke to you tonight. Or maybe part of your heart has been gripped by something in this world, and really you would honestly have to say that, hey, my affections, my attention, it's partially in the Lord. I know I'm going to heaven, I know I'm saved, but my interest is really consumed by other things, separate things, not godly things, but worldly things. Or maybe you've even backslidden. Right now you're in a place where you're reaping the consequences of a decision or a series of decisions where you've said, I can, I can deviate from God's will in this. And it's not going to hurt, but it hurts. Well, here's your chance right now. Is that God the Holy Spirit spoke these things through his word and he tugged at your heart at a particular point in this sermon tonight because of something he wants to do in your life because he wants to bless you. And so if, if in any way the Lord spoke tonight, I would just ask you, just stand up. You don't have to come to the front. Stand up where you are right now. And here's why, because you're just saying, okay, God, I'm owning this. I'm owning that tonight you spoke to me. 
I'm owning that there's something missing. There's something lacking. There's a need that I have. And God, I don't want to stay like this. I don't want to continue to live a complacent, lukewarm faith. But I want to be like Joshua, Lord. I want the adjectives that describe my life in the end to be victorious and to be courageous and to be successful. And that, Lord, I would leave a mark on this world, a legacy that goes beyond just whatever it is right now, whatever it's heading towards. Father, I pray right now for those that tonight, before you, not before the church or anyone else, have just said, Jesus, help me. Lord, I ask that there would be a fresh baptism, a fresh moving of your Holy Spirit in their heart. That the words of my prayer would be the words of their heart, Lord. That they would be, again, dedicated, consecrated, set apart for you. That your word would take up its right place, bound between the frontlets of our eyes, bound to our hand, directing our feet. That we would be completely set apart for your love, Lord. That we would experience it richly and fully. That we would know what it is to sit long in your presence and to just drink the water of life. To find satisfaction at the well that satisfies infinitely. Lord, we pray that you'd pour out your living water upon your people right now. That your love and the power of it right now would break every chain, every addiction, every bondage. Everything that separates, that frustrates, that casts down. And Lord, that we would be a people on fire for you in these days. So have our hearts, Lord. Have our lives. And that we would love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. Please, Lord, we ask that you would do above and beyond what we could ask or think through the power that works in us, the power that you've given, and the life that is so real and so good. Bless your people now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.